Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast this week. I'm excited to share my conversation with Elizabeth Graves. Elizabeth is a highly experienced and passionate cancer coach dedicated to helping individuals heal and tackle issues such as resilience, fear of recurrence, and living with confidence after their cancer diagnosis. She has 15 years of experience in the coaching field and has empowered countless clients to overcome obstacles, clarify goals, and develop effective strategies for personal growth and fulfillment as they recover from this life-changing diagnosis. I really loved Elizabeth's energy and presence, and um, she was so generous, really, in sharing her own personal story, how she came to this really important field of cancer coaching. It was actually the first... um, I didn't know that that field actually existed before talking to her. And I now see that um, anyone who receives a life-changing diagnosis would be really fortunate to have someone such as Elizabeth to kind of walk through the multiple stages of uh, that process. And so I I am looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of The Wholehearted Healer. I'm so grateful that you're with me today. I'm your host, Dr. Aideen Banish, and I'm excited for a conversation today with Elizabeth Graves. Um, I love when I bump into people who I really resonate with um, out in the world, and Elizabeth and I stood in a line at a Joe Dispenza <laughs> event <laughs> waiting to, um, to, to get signed up for some research while we were in Nashville, and um, and. I just really loved chatting with her and I felt like she would be a great person to interview for my podcast. Um, Elizabeth is a cancer coach and she has a website and a business called Cancer Strong that we're going to hear more about. And so Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you. And that was your first Joe Dispenza event, if I remember correctly, right? It was my first and definitely not my last. I'm, I'm already trolling the website looking for my next uh, event. So yeah, it was it was really life-changing for me. Yeah. I, I mean, those events for me, every time I go, I feel like it's such a blessing to go to, you know, to actually have the time and the space and the resources to go. And um, yeah, they're really, they're phenomenally life-changing for me yeah, too. Um, so Elizabeth, I would love to hear a little bit about your background. I know we talked briefly in line, but um, but if you want to share, you know, just your your upbringing and how you got into this work of um, of coaching and helping and journeying with others through cancer. Sure, um, I'm really happy to share. Thank you. Um, you know, I was in corporate America for um, about 12 years and kept feeling like I wanted to have a more um, more uh, opportunity for deep connection with people. And so I um, had been a follower of Martha Beck's for, you know, a couple of years at that point and decided to take her training. Um, it was my uh, birthday present for my 30th birthday to myself. Um, so I did her training 
And I just immediately started to feel this sort of momentum shift within me that it was so, um, her teachings and her, you know, her, her most recent book is on, t- in intent on integrity. And that's kind of where she's been for, you know, for so many years. And I just loved that she had this very, um, sort of, uh, practical application of what I felt like were spiritual principles. And so I, I immediately wanted to kind of bring those into my team. So I started doing a lot of coaching, um, as part of my, you know, as being a manager at that point. And I was working with, um, I've, I've worked in technology, uh, organizations for years. So I was bringing that sort of, um, really personal focus into a lot of the team work that I was doing. So, um, that felt really good for a, a long time and, and, um, was really satisfying. And then, and then I kind of felt that need again. Right. And so I started, um, kind of putting feelers out and looking for opportunities to coach with women who were really looking for a sort of transformational leadership opportunities. And as that practice started growing, I went to the life coach school and was able to really focus in, um, mostly on tools at that point, and also creating a community around my own growth within the coaching world. And, um, so that, that sort of combination of being able to, um, grow my focus on coaching and expand within, um, organizations was really like really satisfying. I felt really inspired by the work. It felt like I'd, I'd really met my true calling. And then, um, Within about a year of that, I was diagnosed with cancer for the first time. And I um, I just, that diagnosis was such a profoundly changing experience for me. I was um, 37 and um, going through fertility treatment. And so it was, um, you know, I, I had the, um, I, I that as part of the diagnosis, I also lost my fertility. So I had this grieving around, you know, my family, what I thought was going to be, what I would be growing as far as a family. Um, and it was also the sort of reckoning of that, um, the life is fleeting, right? I, I sort of lost the innocence of this, of this hope for a long life. So that was really, really, um, very impactful to me. Um, and I remember saying to to some friends, you know, I think that we need coaching in this in this cancer space. Like it just feels like um, there. I didn't know how to move forward. I had so many tools. I mean, master's degree was in social science. I had all this coach training. I had been working with you know a lot of really inspirational women. I felt like I have anybody. I had all the tools I needed, and yet I didn't know how to take a step forward. And so I remember saying to people, like, I think we need more um, coaching in this space. And I finally um, spoke with a physician who said, nope, people with cancer don't need coaching. They need chemo. And I was like, okay, it must be my problem. This must be my problem. <laughs> so I just kind of put it away for a while. Um, and then I was diagnosed again about three and a half years later. And uh, I just knew, you know, my daughter was like one and two, one or two the first time, not particularly aware of what was going on. She was five the second time. And so I just knew that I didn't have uh, the time or the space to grieve the way I had the first time. And I really wanted to reduce the impact on her. And I knew I really kind of needed to clean up my space in order to do that, right? I need to internally be able to sort of process through my feelings without them becoming everybody else's problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really consciously coached myself. I got a coach to go through that second experience. You know, um, 
these things are, are always, you know, it's funny how things work out, right? The first time it was a profoundly um, deep uh, emotional experience and not as difficult physical experience. The second time was a much more difficult physical treatment, um, but I was much, much better at taking care of the emotional side. And from that, I became super clear that um, it wasn't just me who needed it. <laughs> it wasn't just me who, who needed the help and that there was a lot of space to make positive change for people who were seeking it within the cancer space. Wow. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. Um and how wise of you to, I mean, of course we need a coach during the most, one of the most challenging chapters of our life. I mean, who, that everyone does. And the idea that, um, I mean, that, that harsh quote from that physician just breaks my heart a little bit. Um, for someone I've, I've been through coaching, I've had a coach and for someone who's listening, who may not understand because you speak about it so clearly and so eloquently can you talk about, you know, how coaching um, helped you with that second bout that you went through in terms of like, in what way did coaching help you? Yeah, that's a really great question. Thank you. Um, you know, I think um, I'll start in case it's helpful for anyone. I'll start by making a distinct distinction between what therapy is and what coaching is. And the way I really draw that line is um, therapy tends to deal a lot more with trauma. So things that have happened to us, um, maybe places where we're stuck in our lives or where we have thought patterns from previous events that um, prevent us from creating the life that we want. Whereas coaching is really focused on what's going on right now. And can we create thoughts that help us get to the future we're seeking. So what was really useful for me is to start looking at um, what were the biggest fears that I had. Um, so for example, I don't find myself to be particularly afraid of death itself, but what I really was deeply mourning and deeply fearful of is like, could could I go through this treatment and still be the mom I wanted to be? I was so concerned about my daughter. Um, and once I knew that a lot of my fear was around her, I really was able to shape my entire treatment around my desire for her to be as minimally impacted as possible. So, you know, for me, that, that, um, awareness is what the coaching is all about is that we go from this sort of, um, large scale fear or this sort of unknown, right? This ambiguous sense of dread and really peel back the layers to what specifically is each client's fear, right? One, one um, friend who was, she was not a client, but what friend, um, dear friend of mine passed away from stage four breast cancer. And one of our last conversations was that she just wanted to make sure that her daughter had a dress for the first day of school. And so every year we make sure that that happens. Right. And it's that, that, um, like she knew it was coming. Right. But, but when we are, when we are reckoning, reckoning, reconciling what we're going through, there's these little pockets of like, but I just can't deal if this isn't taken care of. Right. And so the peace comes with taking care of those issues, but that's not the same for each person. And so I think that the gift of coaching is, 
you know, I'm willing to sit with my clients as they sort of peel back the layers and find what's the pocket for them that they just need to get settled um, in order to focus fully on treatment or in order to let go fully, right? Both sides are part of this journey as a coach. Um, so I work with women primarily who've been diagnosed um, all the way through newly diagnosed through, you know, stage four and transitioning out. One thing that you said, Elizabeth, that really stuck with me was that you had the awareness that if you didn't have some help to get through this journey, that your fear and all of the struggle that you were going through, somehow those around you were going to experience it. So mm-hmm. can you speak about that? Because I think that's a really profound awareness. This, this, And we all know this on some level, like if I'm having a terrible day, or if one of my kids comes home from school and they've had a terrible day, that terrible day can spread in our home like a wildfire (laughs) um, if it's unchecked. And so can you speak to that idea a little bit more? Sure. I think, um, you know, the first time I was diagnosed, I um, had a full hysterectomy and I was, uh, I was given a two week recovery time. I didn't feel recovered for 18 months because the grief was so profound for me. I just like, I can't, um, under, I can't overstate, I guess the, the way to phrase, I can't overstate how much grief I had. You know, I just, I had this picture of a family that then was never coming and I didn't know, um, how to deal with the guilt I had about that. Um, I didn't know how to, how to talk with people about it. It felt really different than experiences I, I knew from other people, so what we what we discussed from a medical standpoint was a two week issue, right? Between surgery and recovery. And my lived experience was a completely life-shattering diagnosis. And that time between my expected endpoint of two weeks through around 18 months later was just this like complete unknown for me. And there were days where Um, you know, I wasn't sure how I was going to get through them. I didn't know how to deal with the grief. Um, I wanted to be a really different person. I wanted to be the mom at the park who was like joyfully pushing her daughter on the swings. And I had fleeting moments of that, but I missed this baby that was never going to come. You know, I missed my daughter. I I knew she wasn't going to have a sibling. I, I, um, had this deep grief around going to meet people's second babies and my daughter would carry her doll and introduce that as her baby. Right. And I knew that I, it was my body that was denying her that. And those things, that type of grief was, so hard for me to get through. And so I knew what I was getting into the second time. I knew that we would talk about, you know, it's a three month treatment period, but I expected that that would be uh, pretty well understood. I could map that. I had doctors to speak with. I had have an incredibly supportive medical staff. I am daily, even now daily grateful for them. They're just I mean, one of the greatest gifts of this experience has been my oncologist. He is one of the kindest people I've ever met, but also he's not going to walk the daily life with me after that. Right. And so I knew that, um, you know, my diagnosis was quite a bit more precarious the second time I didn't have as much, um, I guess, hope. I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go. And so I felt really like the day-to-day mattered a lot more to me than maybe it had before. And so I wanted, um, I wanted to be honest and also kind. 
Um, I wanted to be respectful of a slowly healing body and also hold my daughter when she wanted it. Right. And so I was really conscious of, of knowing that that's where I would put my focus. And I was really lucky. I mean, it's really hard to say that a second bout with cancer is lucky, right? But I was really lucky in that I was, um, you know, I had a lot of people bring food and, and really kind of try to show up for me the first time. And I found I couldn't eat, eat it the way I wanted. And then I felt a, a lot of guilt around that. And so I was really conscious of like, I need to be careful of what I allow kind of into my house and I don't deal well with guilt. And so when people would say, how can I help you? I just said like, please don't bring food, but I'd love to go for a walk, you know, and just being like, that was a, a way that I could kind of clean up my emotions is I, I don't do well when I'm, I'm operating with guilt. So how do I eliminate guilt as much as possible? How do I um, ask for help with laundry? Like that is something I hate to do, right? So it's, I'm definitely not going to do it when I have the excuse of chemo, <laughs> but turns out we all need clothes. So like I asked for help in those ways. And that was the gift to me of doing this the second time of like recognizing I'm stressed if I don't have my house in order. So I needed help with that. I don't deal well with guilt. So I don't allow that in, you know, and being really specific about what I personally can handle. And it's interesting, like, you know, the more I work with different clients, I started out kind of thinking we're all the same in that way. Mm -hmm. And that's not true at all, right? Like some people find laundry really relaxing and, you know, what they want help with is like, please, somebody take my kid to gymnastics so that I can get the house done. And I was the opposite. Like, please, somebody do the laundry so I can take my kid swimming, you know? Yeah. So the gift of coaching is to get really specific on that because there isn't one answer fits all. And I wonder, Elizabeth, living with this diagnosis and serving the population that you do, how do you balance like living in what I call the liminal space, like the not knowing, right? We all live there. I mean, we fool ourselves. I think most of us are walking around with this artificial sense of control and um, that somehow when your life is split open, when you've had the diagnosis, when you've had a big loss, you're just more aware that like, maybe we're not in control of anything. <laughs> and how does living in that space or serving people that are living in that space, how does that shift your, your day to day? That's a great question. Um, for me, um, I follow the same cycles that my clients do. You know, I feel, um, I feel, I still feel a lot of fear around scans. Um, this year we did uh, an added layer of scans. So we, we did um, a lot more, uh, I shouldn't say a lot more. We scanned my lungs, which we've never done before. So I knew that, you know, now I'm at a, a stage in my recovery where we're looking like, has it, has it metastasized, right? So I went through all of the fears that my clients go through. So from that standpoint, um, I don't know that my life is that much different. I think what I become very aware of is that with a diagnosis like this, one of the um, byproducts is that we start asking questions we don't have to when we're still living with confidence of a long life, right? What I've become really clear about is that living long enough to answer those questions is a gift, right? So every time I'm able to ask myself a hard question, 
do the deep emotional work of trying to find an answer and live long enough to change my life to match that, that's a gift. Mm. Um, But it doesn't make it easy. And one of the things I find to be really fascinating is, you know, the first time I had cancer, I was like, I felt really um, guilt, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. I felt like, you know, I must have brought this on myself in some way. And so I didn't talk a lot about it. And the second time I thought like, I can't do this by myself. This has to be something I bring out into the light. It has to be something where I say, you know, this is my experience, strength and hope around this. How can I share it? And so I find myself um, being somebody that people say like, oh, <laughs> you have cancer. You should talk to Elizabeth, right? And so it's this um it's this gift of having conversations with people. And over time, what I learn, you know, what I see over and over, it even happened to me last night is that um, while people are in treatment, there's a lot of um, discussion of the physical impact, you know, like I'm, I'm going through chemo and I'm tired or, you know, I'm shocked at how well we're actually able to manage my nausea, right? I thought that this was just going to level me and, and that part's been okay. People have these very physical reports about what's going on. Once that's done, once the treatment is complete, then it's this like free fall of emotions that I think that's where the coaching comes in is like, um, I can't fix that, right? I can't change that we go through this free fall, um, but I can sit with you, right? And I can help guide questions that help maybe get you quicker to the to the right answer for you. Um, and I think that's, I, you know, you asked me originally, how does it change my day to day? I try to ask myself those same questions because this isn't a linear path, but cancer doesn't for most of us, um, doesn't go away. We have scans, we have checkups, right? It's this, it's this cycle, right? Like discovery, diagnosis, treatment, post-treatment discovery. And so how do we learn to live in each one of those phases? I think a lot about, um, about becoming a parent in the same way, right? There's this time of like, are we going to try or not try, right? Or that like, holy cow, I'm pregnant. Like I don't, right? There's that discovery is kind of similar. And then you are pregnant, right? You are becoming a, a parent, however that looks for people, right? And then you are a parent, right? And then it's like, oh, I'm a parent. Like I can go be other things now, right? But it's it doesn't end, right? You just, you kind of keep going through, right? Now I'm a parent of a toddler and now I'm a parent of a kid in school, right? And so it doesn't ever stop. And I kind of think about that the same way with the diagnosis is that it, it's not an end point, right? That it's not a... um it doesn't go away. It just keeps changing and morphing. And and so my goal with my clients is my goal with myself is to continue to find ways to live, to, to live sort of beautifully in each one of those phases. And most of them actually don't feel beautiful, right? Like, but can we ask questions that allow us to have beautiful thoughts sometimes, right? Or even gratitude, right? There's this um, desire to like, to stop. I have this desire right now to stop avoiding the darkness of this to stop focusing on like just no more darkness and instead say like am I brave enough to open to the light of life again right am I brave enough to show up instead of just try to stop from dying (laughs) right really different goals really different focus and sometimes it's hard well and I imagine too I mean I feel like the way that our society operates Americans love a good story. Like we Mm -hmm. love a good, you know, like when you're done with chemo or radiation, you ring the bell 
and there's this triumphant moment. And it's sort of, if you're not experiencing it, other people probably place, oh, you're done. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's, I think it's similar to when, you know, we lose someone we love and we can, from the outside, someone can sustain looking at someone going through grief for so long, and then they want it to be done and they want life to return to normal and move on. So I'm so grateful with the work that you're doing um, because the work as, as you've sort of so eloquently puts, have shared, like almost starts when you ring the bell and it's done when you're, when you're kind of putting the pieces back together. And I think that real, um, it does take courage to kind of look up from that state of surviving and, and say like, now what Mm -hmm. to to have the, I think it takes courage to kind of really face that. And so how beautiful that, um, you're doing that with other people. Thank you. Yeah. I do feel, um, I do feel really compelled by this work. I feel it's, it is really such an honor. I know that's like a, a cheesy thing to say, but it is this gift to be able to ask these hard questions with people. I, I think, um, I, I, you know, I really hope at some point that these, these kinds of conversations are, are becoming more common because, um, you know, I find a lot of times in support groups, what we're doing is talking about the diagnosis and not the experience of living with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, I think that's the next kind of phase of supporting people, you know, as they, as we live longer, right, this becomes more chronic than acute, right, when we start looking at a different way of living with some of these diagnosis. Um, and, you know, these, um, as we do live longer, you know, it's like, um, how do we find each other? You know, how do we um, create communities around living with these issues? Um, one of the things that I say often to my clients is, I know all of them, right? I get to see them, and so so many all so many of them feel like they're all alone, right? And so I I often say like it's like it's like um, you're you're walking alone in a dark forest right now. But if I could just give you a flashlight, you'd see that there's a woman right next to you, right? Because I see her too. And so how do we create these connections for people to see each other? I think the the isolation and the loneliness of some of these treatments is like, you know, if we could just, if they could just find each other, like that helps a lot. I think that's one of the benefits of, you know, things like social media and Instagram where these small pockets of communities where people are able to see each other, right. And, and get inspiration and wisdom from each other is so beautiful. So I think um, learning to ask questions in a way that's really helpful and healing and, and finding each other, right. Taking some of that um, separation out of this, because the longer we live with these, these illnesses, you know, the more of us there will be, right? Yeah. And, and community is always a balm, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's this, yeah, it's this way to distribute the burden, distribute the weight and find strength. And um, I wonder, Elizabeth, what you would say, you know, I've spoken with so many different people who have gone through illness, who have lost a loved one, who may be in recovery. And all of those moments or experiences are ways that break us open, make us more vulnerable and actually make us pause to ask, you know, you've, you've referenced the questions a lot in this podcast. Um, what do you say to someone or what advice or wisdom might you offer to someone who 
as of yet, has not gotten a two by four from the universe, right? It may be coming, but right now they're sort of just going through life. Um, I think for many people, there's this gnawing feeling that like not everything is right, that maybe the way we're living is not totally sustainable, or maybe they're feeling a little lonely. What questions or or what kind of work can someone do um, prior to the harder stuff? Do you have any ideas there? It's such a lovely question. Nobody's ever asked me that, but I really love it. You know, one of the things that we focus on a lot and um, particularly in early coaching, because people often come, you know, they, they start seeking a coach when it feels like, I thought I was at the bottom and it turns out I'm at a new bottom. <laughs> and they're like, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do here? Right. And right. that's usually when they find me. So one of the things that we often um, do is start talking about energy. And I think that that's a valuable question um, or a valuable topic regardless of where people are in their health journey. So to your point, they can be perfectly healthy and we could have a conversation about energy. So I think one of the things that is a, as a really um, valuable thing to do is to look at your energy. So like, let's say, you know, right now for all we, all intents and purposes, we're both healthy. Right. And Mm so we start today and I might say, you know, I think my energy today is probably about an 87%, right. It's not a hundred percent, but it's pretty high level. Um, so I don't plan my day as though I have a hundred percent energy, right? I start with 87%. And then I look for how do I um, build in activities that replenish my energy rather than deplete it. So like for me, the laundry issue is such an easy one because it's like, it's, I know so much, it's just a drain for me, right? So today's not a good day for that, but I want to get in some exercise and I know time on the bike does that. Right. So I'm going to use energy with that, but I'm also going to rebuild it at the same time. I know reading to my daughter is a replenisher for me. So I'm going to spend time. I'm going to build that in today specifically. Um, and those are the kinds of things that I think start changing our, our days, maybe even changing our lives is, uh, we recognize that some activities that we do at any one time are going to be a drain, right? They deplete but we also need to replenish or we end up with these like bottoms that we didn't know we could hit, right? Where everything feels like it's draining. I think um, I've I've tried over, you know, I'm, uh, let's see how far am I? I'm a year and a half out of my last treatment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still doing those things where I'm still looking at um, how do I build energy today? And it's really interesting to see that as like a long-term um focus that my days are so much more enjoyable now because I'm, I'm really seeking ways, you know, in the summer, I love to swim. So we try to plan in uh, swim days, right. And that, that gives us some exercise. It gives us a little bit of vitamin D. We do a little bit of talking and reading together under a tree, right? So all of those things are replenishers and my day is so much more enjoyable than if I'm like, I'll drop you off at the pool and go to the grocery store right? Because one person is enjoying and one person is not, right? So it's kind of like, even to your point earlier about community, if we both go to the grocery store and we're, you know, making a game of it, we've got four stacked activities that are replenishers. They're all the same things we need to do, but life becomes much more enjoyable. And I start that with people um, when they first start coaching with me. And so often they're at, you know, 3%, 15% energy, planning for a day with 100%, feeling like failure, 
right? And hating life. It's like, I did not survive for this life, right? So if you've got 3% energy, you don't want to spend it on taxes and laundry, right? But that's when we find like, who's the person we love to be with the most and plan that in, right? And that's the only thing that goes on your list that day because it's our energy replenisher and it's 3% of your energy. That's all you've got, right? So you should spend that in connection with a person that matters to you, right? When you've got a 25, 30, that's pretty good right after treatment, right? And then you might be able to fit in somebody who doesn't feel great if they need to see you, right? But we were really mindful, really specific, and really um, purposeful about doing activities that help replenish rather than deplete. That's so simple and so profound. And it's really interesting to me because it, um, even as a family unit, you know, like if you have kids who can, are old enough to, to check in and play that game. I mean, I just see that relationships would be so much more harmonious. And that then on a day that you have a lot of energy, you really do feel gratitude that you can offer to someone else, Mm -hmm. but you're not, you're not giving from an empty cup. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much burnout right now too. That's a really good antidote for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's really interesting too, like even just being really um, uh, mindful about doing that. So, um, you know, the things that are depleting, like if you, if we look at our day, right. And and we just start off by saying that 50% 50 or so of the things that we have to do are going to be depleters and 50% are replenishers. But if I know that my goal is to get as many replenishers in as possible, I think we start to see that suddenly we're like doing 70% replenishers and 30% depleters. Because a lot of those depleters, if we don't just say we have to do them, if we say like, I'm just, I just can't do that today, we don't end up needing, it's like once we stop doing it, we don't ever pick it back up again. And life is, is better for it, right? It's all of these kind of like, rules about what we have to do, that they end up being those depleters. And once we open our minds and capacity to think of ways that we don't do those things anymore, they often don't make it back on the list. And then that becomes a much more satisfying life. Oftentimes like stress levels go down, the overall vibe of, you know, to your point, your house goes, you know, much more calm and, and, um, we don't bring those things back in. It's not like when I'm a hundred percent, then I'll have more time for the 20, per, you know, to do something that depletes me by 20%. You just never do it again. Right. We yeah. find ways to kind of stop doing it or get help or trade, um, trade duties. Right. So, you know, I have a neighbor who's, um, super happy to, to mow my lawn and I watch their kiddos. Right. But it's like the perfect thing, right. I turn on the sprinklers, the kids are running through, they're super happy. And I'm not worried about, lawn mowing, which is real depleting for me, right? That's great for everybody, but that wasn't an option when all I could think about is like, when am I going to have the energy to mow the lawn? Right. And to your point that, I mean, one person's treasure is another person's garbage sometimes, like that there are people who truly love laundry. Right. (laughs) Um, I love, I love um, being in the kitchen. I love making soup. I have friends who like, if they never have to go into the kitchen again, it's, it's okay. So that it's, it's not just like, oh, if I do this, I'm not going to be able to like follow through on like my basic life commitments. We're talking no. about things that, yeah, there's someone out there who loves what you can't stand. Exactly. Like whenever I know somebody's sick now, I always say like, please let me be your grocery store person. Cause I love to go to the grocery store. Um, and a lot of people don't, but I mean, I like, 
you know, in another life, I'll be like a Instacart delivery person, right? Like I love to listen to podcasts in the car and go to the grocery store. So right. like send me on those errands, right? Um, so yeah, we're definitely not saying things, these things don't get done. But when you look at like, how do I include more replenishers in my life? That's, you know, that's how it happens. That is really sweet advice for everyone, I think. Um, because we're all somewhere within that percentage, right? And it's sometimes I think really surprising, um, especially if you're on autopilot thinking, you know, so many um, amazing, brilliant, multitasking women who are, you know, keeping 25 balls in the air. Um, if you actually, sometimes when I was really in the height of my busyness and working full-time and young kids, just the idea of examining like where my energy was at felt a little dangerous. Cause if I looked at it, then I'd have to be honest with myself. So I think there's that too. It's an act of rebellion just to actually check in and be honest. Like how, where am I at today? Mm -hmm. um, rather than just kind of powering through. Well, and I think, um, you know, this, this, um, what I'm about to say won't come as a surprise, but it sometimes requires we make difficult choices. You know, we're not saying that um, you do the analysis and then everything is perfect, right? But doing the analysis might highlight, I'm running at 40% energy on my best days and trying to plan for 120%, right? And so if that's true, what do we prioritize, right? What if, if we could just take all of our activities down to a 40% level, what things would we actually want to do? Because so often those are the things at the bottom of the list, right? Could we, could we inverse our list, right? And um, those are hard conversations, right? Sometimes we don't go to as many camps or we don't go to as many sports or, you know, all of these things, right? Like maybe, um, you know, any, any number of difficult decisions, those, I think one of the things I guess I would point out, most of the time those decisions are difficult once, right? Once we can make it and follow through, it's not a decision we have to make over and over, right? You'll start, it's just a, it's a, it's like, it's rather than like trying to, you know, the analogy where it's like, you just keep rolling snow until it becomes a snowman, right? Mm -hmm. We're not like making a bigger ball here, right? We're choosing to have a different kind of snowman. And so I think that's the, the, the conversation is like, are we willing to live differently? Are we willing to accept like running at 40% right now? It doesn't make sense for me to try to plan for 120. Let's build this life. And then as we replenish the energy more, we'll go, we'll start to see it grow, right? It's, it's that if that 40% um, energy is planned into a life of 120% and all the replenishes are put at the bottom, we don't grow to 120%. We shrink to 30% we shrink to 15%, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think um, the, the model of using that energy percentage to, to sort of guide and start the conversation helps us get a check of what's real, right? It's like, it's like we're dealing with actual, um, a budget, an energy budget, right? And are we spending our energy on things that are growing instead of depleting? Yeah. I love that. And it just, anytime I, I hear about energy and I met you at a Dispenza conference, and I didn't get to see you at the end. I just wonder if you have any take home ahas from that experience. Um, 
and anything that you'd like to share from that week? It's just, you know, that it was such a special week. Um, I feel like there were so many layers of learning um, from that. I'm so, I guess, I guess I would almost have to unbraid all my thoughts to kind of come to it. But I think one of the things that really I think often about is the impact of being in a group um, so focused on healing altogether. You know, I, I was, um, it felt like such a gift to be selected as a healy. So, um, you know, I speak so often to people who've been diagnosed with serious injury or illness. It's rare for me to be in a room of 200 people where everyone has, um, you know, the healies kind of, um, section off together in a couple of different times. And, um, you know, so often in the in the world of illness and injury, the person who's diagnosed is surrounded by healthy people who are treating the physical experience. There aren't that many opportunities where we're all in a group together. And so I think that there's a, for me, there was such a gift in hearing how many people dealing with so many types of, of um, you know, injuries or illness are all asking the same question, which is, um, like, how do I start my, how do I start living with acceptance of what I've been dealt? And when, like, this is a funny way to ask this question, I guess, but like, when do I know that I'm under a solid enough footing that I can, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so that's the, this sort of, um, these sort of questions were really swirling around of like, how did you figure this out? Or do you feel like you're there yet? That was a really eye-opening experience for me. Um, and then I, I'm just, uh, you know, I think almost on a daily basis of the sort of beauty of having so many people meditating at the same time. There's a, a energy that I've never felt anywhere else. There's a level of vulnerability and trust that is really pretty special. Um, you know, personally, I'm so inspired by the way that Dr. Dispenza speaks and teaches, you know, he's a very, um, uh, he's a very aware teacher of being able to read the room of an entire group. And like, when do you repeat information? And he's, you know, that the ability that he has to read the energy of a room is really special. Um, and then I had a couple of like where, you know, Dr. Dispenza talks about kind of seeing the mystic or being with the mystic or communing with the mystic. And I had these moments of, you know, I literally felt like I was giggling with God and like, what a gift, you know, um, I had these really special moments. I'm really, you know, I, I talk about my daughter a lot. Our our relationship is so important to me and she's seven now and asking questions about God and things like that. And I had this moment where I, I was deep in meditation and I found the two of us floating through this darkness in um, almost like uh, Wendy and the kids and Peter Pan, just like floating toward God. And she and I were looking at each other giggling and God was giggling. And it was just this like such a loving feeling that that was really, that has stayed with me of like, you know, that it can be, um, it can be easy to go down dark pathways with some of this work and see how much sadness there is, but also to believe that there's this ever loving mystical presence kind of surrounding us has been such a gift to me. So um, I don't know. I think, I, I don't know that there's, that there'll ever be enough of that, right? I, if I could 
snap my fingers and go into that deep meditation again today, I I mean, I would never say no to it. It's just such a beautifully loving um, sense of peace that, you know, even in meditation, I don't find that every single time. <laughs> so it was really special to find that level of healing and, and depth of trust with a group like that. It was just really special. I agree with everything you said. Yep. Elizabeth, I'm so grateful that I met you there. I'm so grateful um, for your wisdom and the work that you're doing and um, the relationships that you're creating with um, others who are uh, going through tough stuff. And um, it just, it's, it somehow just brings me comfort knowing that you're doing that work. And I think it's really profound um, and you've said this in a couple of different ways that like you're walking with people that it's not like you have it all figured out, right? Because I think so many people wait to serve in the world until they feel like enough of an authority or like, oh, I I have something to share. Um, I, I'm really grateful for the people who are living open-heartedly, who are, you know, I who can say like, there are days where it's really hard for me and I don't know. But in that, I don't know, there's so much... Um, we can be connected in our, I don't knows. And I think I some of the most beautiful healing comes out of those, those places. So I just want to say thank you and um, offer blessings as you continue this work and offer blessings for your health and, and for your daughter and for, for you to have just a phenomenal life. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Thank you.